0: From Birmingham, Alabama, you're listening to the Flat Picking Pilgrim's Progress. I'm your host, Gary Furr, and I'm so glad to have you with me today. Whether you're sitting in your favorite chair or riding along in the car, I'm glad we're going to get to spend this time together. Last time we were talking about the difference between pilgrims and tourists. I'm going to continue that with a little two-part journey here. This first one is called The Cheap Trip to Israel. You know, preachers are kind of like manure. We do a lot of good if you spread us out, but when you put us all piled up together, it can be almost unbearable sometimes. That's why I sort of lost interest in going to big mass meetings and giant gatherings of religious folk. We're better off if we're spread out. In 1983, I uh, 82 and 83, I think it was, I was part of a company up in New York that was doing introductory preacher tours to Israel. They, of course, wanted you to come and then come back the next year, which I tried to do. And so I went over with a whole plane load of preachers from New York. It was like $599 or $699 round trip from New York of course you had to get to New York. And it seemed like a great idea. We were like goofy tourists. We also were overwhelmed by the breathtaking geography of the place and awed by the ancient wonders everywhere. We, we looked, the pool of Siloam, the stables of Ahab up on Megiddo, the well of Samaria, the Dead Sea, all of it. It was very affordable, but by the time he got to New York and picked up some extra meals, and then my wife suggested I take the three-day add-on tour to Egypt while I was there, it ended up costing a good bit of money. It was that first trip to the Holy Land with all ministers, with a few exceptions, but mostly preachers. And there were some deacons there with us. It was the strangest collection of people. There was one man from some kind of little Bible church who decided instead of giving tips, dollar bills, he would bring all of the clothes that he was going to throw away from the 70s and give them away one at a time to these merchants. Ghastly clothes, And I'm convinced today in the Middle East there are all these people wearing uh, really horrible clothes, wide ties, uh, paisley pants. But anyway, he gave them away one by one and then had an entire empty suitcase to take home. Olive carved nativity scenes to give to people. There was a Yale Divinity School graduate. He was a liberal who smoked a pipe whenever he could and watched the fundamentalists on our group with bemused perplexity. There was an Oklahoma Southern Baptist evangelist who, when we approached the old city via the eastern gate, jumped up and clapped his hands together and said, Hallelujah, boys, right there's where Jesus is going to walk in when he comes back. Uh, the guy from Yale Divinity School pulled his pipe out of his mouth and looked at me and said, what on earth is he talking about? And I had to explain dispensationalism to him and how it was one theory. There was an old preacher from somewhere that complained constantly. Our guide was a man named Shep. He was uh, an older Jewish man who would be very careful about the archaeology of each place and say, well, it may have been here, but we're not exactly sure since these things have changed since the first century, and it might have been there, or it could have been over there. And the old fellow would say, you don't ever tell us exactly where anything, do we know where anything really is? And Shep said, well, this is as close as we can get. And perhaps if we knew the exact location of everything, we might be tempted to worship the place instead of the one who was in that place. It took a conservative Jew to lecture us about theology. The old man grumbled, I just want to walk on that Via Dolorosa where Jesus walked. So it was like that all the way through. The most bizarre people... Flying over, we nearly had a crash, our plane, which was Royal Jordanian Airlines. We landed in Austria for a brief time, and when we did, we hit the ground as hard as I've ever been hit. We landed so hard that I hit my head on the overhead compartment. I don't know how that happened, but then the pilot came on and began first to speak excitedly, in Arabic so I didn't know what was going on children were crying people were scared and finally he told us that the aileron in the back was not functioning and so we literally hit the ground at an angle I thought we ought to go back on the runway and see if any of the luggage dropped out so we got there and went through this tour we were all so different and it was pretty quick that we divided up but Uh, We ended up building some coalitions like the night in Cairo when uh, three of us got together with uh, a fundamentalist pastor and we decided that we would go to see the greatest belly dancer in all of Egypt purely as a cultural experience. Meanwhile, I roomed with a friend of mine from Baylor PhD work. He was my friend. But I kept a diary from that trip and I went back and read it and realized I was making a descent into madness. At first, it was just external things. Today, I left the DFW airport. Scenery was great. Sun was shining on the clouds. Crowds at the airport arrived in Amman, Jordan. And oh, the otherworldliness of Jordanian men sitting on their haunches, smoking filterless cigarettes, barefooted with traditional headdresses. But by day five or six, there was a lot of fragmentation going on in the group. We had uh, divided between the true believer, holy and righteous conservatives, and those who were deemed liberals. Then one night, it was New Year's Eve, and our Arab Christian host decided to bring out some cheese and crackers and things to celebrate because the Jewish New Year is different. And as a Christian, he wanted to celebrate with us the Christian New Year. And so he brought out little tiny glasses of wine for the occasion, smaller than a shot glass, and maybe almost a thimbleful. But we, we it would had out had wine and had these other things. And so I had to go through a conscious thing, even though I'm not one who typically takes that. But I thought, well, it would be rude not to receive his hospitality and be gracious. And so I did. But. Then later on, we divided into the wine-sippers and the non-sippers. We split over eschatology between pre-tribs, post-tribs, mid-tribs, and no-tribs. We disagreed about inerrancy, about archaeology, about ecclesiology, and preaching styles. We were different from each other. But a far deeper tribulation was also going on on a personal level. When my roommate turned out the light at night and we both went to sleep, uh, he would sometimes verbally go back over the day and all of the moments of what we'd see, and I was too nice as a guy to tell him to stop. Uh, so of course that gave me some advantages. I could I could loathe him and feel self righteous about it. So I kept listening and getting better. But later that night I awoke to this honking hawking sound. He was snoring. No, maybe it was thunder. How can your nose stay on your face with that coming through it? I'm ashamed of the journal entries I recorded. I got up several times during the night, went to the lobby of the hotel in Tiberias, looked across the Sea of Galilee where Jesus walked on the water, and the miraculous catch was pulled in. And I pondered things like, did James and John snore? And what did they do about it? Terrible things can go through a sleepless person's mind at night. Frustration, occasional thoughts of a well-placed pillow in the night. But I had heard of Israeli prisons, so self-preservation kept me from that. But to my discredit, I never said a word. I didn't talk to him about it. I just kept my resentment to myself until the next night came. And oh my gosh, the litany started again. I needed to confess my sins somewhere. We experienced a lot of hospitality there. Arab people who welcomed us and offered us coffee and smiled back when we smiled seemed like us. We met Jewish people who were resilient and dedicated and happy people, welcomed us, served us falafels, smiled back when we smiled, seemed like us. On the day we came to the Wailing Wall in the old city of Jerusalem, I saw another world altogether, and somewhere under there were the layers of the walls of the ancient city. Somewhere here, King David sought to build the city that would never fall, where his people might live in security, peace, and prosperity forever. Here, people of the world came day after day to pray, to remember, to hope, to write little prayers and fold them up and slip them into the cracks of the wall. So I was standing there waiting for our turn to go in. Overhead, the voice of a Muslim uh, Mullah calling the people to prayer wailed, haunting. And we, Christians standing in this land where our founder began it all, on this pilgrimage to remember and be enriched, saw the whole contradictions of the world. I looked to my right and saw a stack of automatic weapons guarded by one young Israeli soldier while his fellow soldiers walked down to pray for peace. A world where they would no longer have to walk looking over their shoulder, but all these years later, it is still the same. In a place dedicated to worship and something over which Jews and Muslims and Christians continue to fight. But the worst crisis came at the garden tomb. The garden tomb probably is not the spot of the resurrection. and the first century tomb of Jesus... But it was spotted by a British officer named Gordon, and it's called Gordon's Calvary. And they built a nice little place for tourists there. And you can go into an ancient empty tomb and experience something of what it's like. And then they have a place where Christian groups can take communion together. And so we came out to have communion after looking at the tomb and imagining ourselves in the first century with Mary and the others and we began to take the Lord's Supper, but we had a crisis. The pious conservatives would not take communion with those who had sipped the thimble of hospitality. Look around America today. Evangelical religion is falling apart. Christian nationalism is replacing discipleship of Jesus with an idolatrous mixture of patriotism and Christianity. Young people are flooding out the back door saying no thanks. And after I spent my whole life tending the church, it's a hard thing to watch. It's the whole lot of us. And the whole notion of Sacrificial lives have been replaced. Humility is no more the supreme virtue, but standing up and being right. And this unholy alloy of Jesus and Caesar politics that looks a lot like the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Herodians and a lot less like Jesus. Fred Craddock once told a story about seeing a fistfight going on among a group of Orthodox Jews, young men. He stood there a minute, and there was a Jewish man standing next to him, and he said, what on earth are they fighting about? And he said, oh, they're rabbinical students. They got in an argument about when the Sabbath actually begins. Is it the first moment of darkness, or is it the last ray of daylight? They watched the fight for a while, and then he turned back to Craddock and said, You're an American. He said, Yes. Christian? Yes. And he said, Now you know why Jesus never had a prayer in this town. Naturally, as a doctoral student in Bible and theology, I was all caught up in the euphoria of the first time seeing all these things I had studied about for so long and observing. But now I look back at that trip. And what I really think about is that my wife sacrificed, worked extra so I could go. She thought it was important. And that sacrifice enabled me to do something that would benefit my life. We went back the next year. Friends went with us. And I've gone other times took a long time to pay off that trip, and she worked very hard to do it. And Now, in looking back, that sacrificial gift of hers was more important than the trips we made. Over the years, we've gotten to go to many great places, but the best ones were when we were together, and somehow the trip wasn't quite as much fun when I went by myself. I'm grateful more than I can say for travel is education, but supporting the experiences of others is grace. Those sacrifices mean the world to me. I feel indebted. I feel indebted for people that gave to scholarships I had and people who taught me and people who gave me opportunities. I would never be the person I am today without all of those things. Nobody makes their own life. Thought back more than once to that communion where our self-righteousness and arrogance caused us to part ways. In 2021, I wrote a book at the end of my ministry, the last two years of which were taking my congregation through COVID and all of the disruption of those crazy years that we are still figuring out. I wrote this poem on March the 4th, 2021, right after I finished as the pastor, launched out into the unknown. It's called Heaven's Gate. It had to be a dream because I'm still here. I suddenly stood in line at the entrance door to paradise, The crowd reminded me of the last time that I toured, the loud, dirty streets of old Jerusalem. Priests, soldiers, beggars, and tourists, wall to wall. I was at the back of the line. The man who was in charge made our assignment so we would know what we'd do when we went in. A man in a motorized wheelchair with twisted limbs and stooping neck was sent to an Olympic stadium to run against the wind. A woman, bruised and eyes downcast, was told she now was free to study and roam the cosmos and go just where she pleased without her husband. Children who had died young, those who were afflicted, were announced to be judges and to sit next to Jesus. On and on the assignments set the earthly stations inside out. Doctors, nurses, scholars, and mechanics, people from Paris and carpenters from down south, I was with all the preachers, kings, and presidents, celebrities, and billionaires, the ones who got to run the world, whose words went everywhere. We waited, first expectantly, and then a sense of dread, while criminals and homeless bums heard their names called instead. Finally, after many hours, and only we remained, the one in charge gestured us and called out all our names. A gift is best, we heard him say, when it is something you really need. So I'll give you something for your lives that's bound to set you free. The children will deliver you to a green space far away, and there's no one there to listen or worship what you say. And there you may be silent as long as you require to liberate yourselves from fame in the prison of desire. Of course, we were deflated The others we had watched were given their true heart's desires, and we, it seemed, had not. But he smiled as he sent us out, and my dream ended just then, before I reached that meadow where my restless soul would end. Now I try hard to remember the parts I want to keep as I woke up to the real world, or perhaps fell back asleep. I try not to get into too big a pile of preachers too often. There are just too many temptations. Better spread us out so we can help something else grow. Pay attention to the sacrificial ones among you, the humble ones, the little ones, the weak, the poor, the vulnerable. They will teach you what God wants you to know. Thanks for being here today. If you're interested in that poem, it's in my book, Shadow Prayers. That's on my website, Garyfur.me. All my stuff's over there if you want to take a look. A lot of free stuff. And uh, books and music links. Part two next time. Miracle on the Via Dolorosa. Look forward to seeing you. I'm Gary Furr and this is the Flat Picking Pilgrim's Progress thanks for joining me today you can find my music at g-a-f-u-r-r g-a-furr.com and you can go to my blog site for lots of other information and writings at garyfurr.me g-a-r-y-f-u-r-r.me once again thank you so much Join me next time on the Flat Making Pilgrim's Progress.